0: When I was young, my parents took me to church almost every Sunday. And I well remember the stories of Palm Sunday as a child, but I always thought that it was overrated. I just didn't see what the excitement and pageantry was about, and it it seemed to me uh, odd in many ways. And I suppose uh, that's the way the world sees it today. What's the big deal about a parade? into the streets of Jerusalem. But I've come to see as a Christian now for more years than I want to remember, um, that the, actually I think Palm Sunday is underrated. I think the truth and the beauty here is so magnificent that you can easily miss it as I did as a child. But we're going to walk through it this morning, and I hope that the result and the outcome will be your affection for the Lord Jesus Christ will grow and increase as you see him at work. Perhaps one way to start is to look at the opening words of our service this morning, the preparation for worship on page one. Just as a summary as we get started here this morning, these words are, On Palm Sunday, we celebrate Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy of the coming King who brings salvation and peace. But as we rejoice and shout Hosanna together, it is important that we capture the irony of the day. This is the moment Israel eagerly waited for, expecting a mighty military ruler, not a gentle king, riding on a lowly donkey. This is the day on which Jesus entered the city in triumph, but as a part of his journey to the the cross. This is the week in which the crowd's cries of Hosanna would soon turn to crucify him, crucify him. This is the beginning of the climax of God's redemptive plan to save the world, not by conquering the world, but by dying for it. So as we enter worship today, let's prepare our hearts by contemplating the glory of this King, the one who purposefully rode toward the cross, the one who saved those who hated him, and the one who redeemed the world by dying for it. Indeed. May we pray. Prepare our hearts, O Lord, for that day when we shall see you face to face. When you shall call us home to be with you, prepare us that we might be glad and ready for that moment and that those around us and our families and among our friends would would see it through your eyes too. And We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. It's very clear that Jesus did this on purpose. It's very clear that the whole thing was orchestrated by Jesus for purposes such as these so that we might carefully contemplate what went on. Let's read, first of all, in Mark chapter 11, exactly what uh, was summarized in the words we read earlier. The outline is on pages 8 and 9 of your bulletin. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, you doing? why are you doing this, tell them the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father, Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. If we look carefully at this particular situation, we see many things that are helpful to us. Not only is it a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy that one would come in riding on the colt, the foal of a donkey, but they see the people crowd, the crowd responds in the words and the fulfillment of prophecy. There's nothing innovative about Jesus. He's unique in the sense that he's our only Savior, but everything he does is tied to Scripture. Every single thing. And when we look at his teachings... And when we look at the contours of his life, he is never far from the moorings of the word of God. And here again, as he is clearly orchestrating this event, the shining focus is really not so much on him as it does on the fulfillment of scripture. We may see from this that his word is ever sure. He means what he says. And his word is precious because it all is intended for fulfillment and usefulness for us. Notice, too, that this great king, as he comes, we said there's some irony here, he comes lowly, but he comes in person. Kings were not often seen. They were remote. They had emissaries and ambassadors who carried out their desires. But this one comes to the people and to the holy city himself. He's coming to accomplish some things, as we shall see, but we want to note as we, as we enter into this passage that Jesus wants to be with his people as he comes to the end of his life. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he asks the disciples to watch with him and pray with him while he undergoes his ordeal in the garden, he wants to be with his people. And here he is with them here. We see, too, not only fulfillment of Scripture, but fulfillment of his specific, specific plans. This thing about the donkey is just remarkable. He knows where it is. He knows what the response will be. And when it's brought to him, no one resists. Nobody says, hollers out and calls him a thief. It's almost like his clothing, which he lost at the cross. He used it for a little while, because he was not, his kingdom was not of this world. Kings don't ride on lowly donkeys. Kings ride on powerful horses, big and forceful chariots in in that day, or in many other conveyances of majesty and power. But he comes humbly, quietly, at just the right time, and we must say that he specifically selected the lowliness of his manner that we might be drawn to see the meekness of his heart. But not just that. We're city people. and We often miss, I've tried to mention this almost every year as we come through it. Verse 7 is one of the biggest miracles Jesus ever did. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Now that animal had not ever been ridden. We learned that from another one of the Gospels. It's the first time anyone had ever sat on it. Can you imagine? That would have been a wild reaction in most cases. But the Lord of glory is also the king of creation. And all of his purposes are fulfilled through his animals and creation and his people. And in this instance, he sat on it and there was no objection from the little colt. He sat easily upon it. And although it wasn't majestic and strong, nevertheless, it made no protest. He has complete control over the smallest things and he amazes us with his power. Verse 11 says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around he saw the people there. I say again, he wants to be with his people. He is not a remote king on Olympus. He is not a God who is distant and far away. We can't see him now. But we can be assured that he wants to be in this assembly this morning and with all of his people around the world. As we mentioned already, he is exercising his dominion. This is a king who doesn't throw flashes of lightning and throw his weight around. This is a king who knows exactly what he's about and wants us to see the inside of his power. But nevertheless, it is a gentleness. He is the central figure of history, and yet he's the quietest king we've ever had. He receives the praises of the people. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. He receives the praise of his people. And he doesn't say, oh, no, no, no. In a sense, he lets them come. He knows the fickleness of their hearts. He knows that soon they'll be saying, crucify him, crucify him. But he's willing to receive the praises of his people. This is a time of restoration and rejoicing. And it is concluded with judgment. Because then he comes into the temple and he throws over the tables and he chases out the moneylenders as a foretaste of his coming judgment. So without looking too long or too hard, we have seen full portrait of Christ that fills out the picture of who he was and it's easy to miss we could read about him sitting on the donkey and pay pay no mind to it we could read about him receiving the praises of the crowd and their palm branches and not see the fulfillment of the scriptures there's also another thing here that we want to pay attention to and that enriches this picture we have been looking in recent Sundays in the book of First Thessalonians, and there's a passage in the First Thessalonians, you'll see it there on page 9, that refers to another coming of the King. First Thessalonians chapter 4, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. The same themes are now to be found in his second coming, and we are to view his first triumphal entry as a foretaste of a future fulfillment that will magnify the smallness and yet the majesty of that first coming. This is in fulfillment of prophecy. Here we are told what will happen. The scriptures tell us exactly what will happen. He doesn't want us to be ignorant at least about some of the details or to grieve about like men who have no hope. Jesus died and rose again. We tell you that he's going to come back. And when he comes back, it's going to be a grand and cataclysmic event in which the graves are opened, in which people come down with the angels and the shout of a trumpet, and there will be a marvelous reunion. God and his people and once again he's not coming by the angels or by some messenger or ambassador he's coming himself in person personally exercising executive power over his kingdom it will come at just the right time and manner for we read these words, I didn't have room for it in the, in the outline, but let me read you these words from 1 Thessalonians 5. Now brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you. Galatians 4 says he came at just the right time at Christmas. It's clear from this passage in Mark 11 that everything was brought together in perfect harmony in terms of time and space when he came into the city. And now we are told that his return will not tarry. It will not be too long. It will not be late or delayed in any way. It will come exactly at the right time. So that we might not be surprised, we are told so. We're told that he's coming to his people. Not only in person, but he's coming to be with his people. Not the animals aren't mentioned, the rest of creation, the angels themselves. He wants to come to be with us and with his people. At this moment, his heart and affection is upon you. You are not forgotten, you are not overlooked. You are not unimportant, you're not insignificant. You are, everything about you and everything about your life is precious to him, including the sin which, for which he died. So he comes at just the right time to his people, and he will exercise his power. In the first Palm Sunday, they wave branches and they threw their cloaks on the road. The second poem, the second entrance says. There will be the Lord himself coming down. There will be a loud command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. This is a second coming to surpass the first, for none of the dead were affected in his first coming. But his second coming will be cataclysmic and cosmological in the sense that it's all-encompassing. The dead, the angels, the living, Jesus at the very center of history, Triumphant and marching back in his own power and glory, there he will see receive the praises of his people. If we read again now the Second Thessalonians chapter one passage the paragraph there it says God is just he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to those to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. He will receive the praises of his people, but he will also bring judgment to them. He will bring not only judgment to the moneylenders in the temple and to those who opposed him at the cross, but to all those. Verse 9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. So Jesus is no small king. He is no secondary monarch. He's the Lord of glory. And while it's possible to see the first Palm Sunday as just sort of a localized event, affecting only a few Roman soldiers in a faraway outpost and the people of God at the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which they celebrated every year, it's clear that his second coming will be a worldwide wonderful event for which we are to be prepared even now. So that we will not be fickle, as the crowds were. So that we will not say yes when we mean no. So that we will not just give lip service, but will surely live and die for him. The second triumphal entry is coming. And we don't know when. Could it be this week? Wouldn't that be perfect timing? To come on Holy Week when Jesus was first remembered for his death now comes in power and glory and majesty and triumph and kingdom and blessing. So I hope you agree with me that the events of Palm Sunday for most of us and for most of the world are underrated. Of course Christmas and Easter and maybe Good Friday surpass it in importance and significance. But through the eyes of faith, don't you see the glory of Jesus here and how he cares for you? Don't you see that his power is full and majestic and wonderful? And don't you see that he knows exactly what he's doing? He commands not just the fickle crowds, but the angels and all the heavenly host. And he comes back with his people to redeem his people from death. That's where his affections lie. So we should be prepared. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. That's if they do not believe. And I call upon you today to submit to him. There's something within all of us that resists submission. There's something within all of us that says, I think I know better. I think I'm right. I wouldn't do it that way. But Jesus has shown us a better way. And the beauty of his triumphal entry into the holy city is unsurpassed in the events of scripture. It is one of the most glorious moments. It's as if it were a second transfiguration of Jesus where we could see clearly and wonderfully how great he is. And yet even so, it's in a veiled way. And we understand that that it could be more widely seen as it will at the second coming, but don't you appreciate the way in which he does it? You see, the miracles and actions of Jesus are not only wonderful in themselves, but it's the way he goes about them. The tenderness with which he raises Lazarus. The kindness which he treats the woman who touches the hem of his garment. The mercy that he shows to the Jairus' mother. To Jairus when he lost his daughter. The kindness of our Lord Jesus is evident on every page. So rejoice in the coming of the Lord. As we leave today, you'll be given by the ushers a poem frond. Just one branch, maybe two, one little piece. May it be precious to you as you remember what your Savior did for you and how he did it, how he came and suffered and bled and died. This is a wonderful Savior, and we trust him with this and with the future. Let us pray. As we come before you, Jesus, we see the majesty and power of your glory. We see in the meekness that you displayed on the first poem Sunday a contrast with the majesty of your second coming we see the humility of your first coming and the honor and glory of your second And we see that you do all things so very well we pray this day that we might come with thanksgiving into your presence and be reminded of how you came to die for us at just the right time and in just the right way not because you had to but because you loved us and because you wanted to, and because we are precious to you. May there be no one here this morning who doubts that they count highly with Jesus, that even if they have been rejected by others, made to feel lonely and afraid and even anxious, that there is one who sticks closer than a brother. There is one who will never leave nor forsake us. There is one who is bound to us eternally by his love and grace and will never, never let us down. Others have, others will. But you, O Lord, have been steadfast and sure. And we ask you to receive our thanks. O Jesus, we love you. Come quickly, we say. Come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray.